All right, looking at Psalm 6, you can follow along. I'll read for us. David writes, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So we come to this psalm, and this is one of those psalms where the psalmist, David, uh, he uses what I'm going to call like some really emotive language, some very emotionally charged language. And if you all know me, you know that uh, that makes me a bit uncomfortable. I'm, I'm not really in touch with my emotions. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to process uh, when I hear a lot of emotional language, but it was good for me. I was actually thinking about this week, this um, term that I'd heard, I think I was ex exposed to it when I was in college, but it, uh, it became popularized earlier than that, like in the mid-90s, uh, the idea of emotional intelligence. I don't know if y'all are familiar with this idea of emotional intelligence, uh, but essentially it's, it's a, a framework that, uh, or an assessment tool, you could say, or a series of assessment tools to help you figure out how how well you process your own emotions and understand other people's emotions. And so I did a couple online assessments, and I was not shocked to find that I have officially low emotional intelligence. And as such, this is true of me. Uh, low emotional intelligence refers to the inability to accurately perceive emotions in both yourself and others, and to use that information to guide your thinking and actions. Uh, so I learned this week that I have some area for growth. Um, I'm a little busy right now, so I'm not going to focus on it, but I'm going to try to get to that at some point for the sake of Hillary and my children. Uh, but what I, I want to share with you this morning is we have David here showing us that unlike me, he seems to have some pretty high emotional intelligence. He understands his emotions and he understands where they're driving him. The Spirit's using his emotions to drive him to the Lord. And so what I want us to do as we look at this text, this emotional psalm, I want us to see what David does, because here he's, he's feeling broken. He's feeling broken specifically over his sin, and he shows us the process that he goes through, and it's threefold. He cries out to the Lord, he rejects lies, and he preaches to himself. That's what he does when he feels broken over his sin. So what I want us to do is to also assess what David's done and see it as a call for us to do the same when we feel broken over our sin. So first, crying out to the Lord. If you feel broken over your sin, you're supposed to cry out to the Lord. If you look with me at verse 1 here in Psalm 6, it starts out this way, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And so what David is sharing with us here at the very beginning, you'll notice he says, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. He's not saying I'm not worthy of being rebuked or worthy of being disciplined. He just doesn't want that experience right now. He wants to be freed from the weight of that experience. And it's because he has repented. This is a psalm of a man who has repented, yet he still feels the brokenness, the shame of his sin. He is feeling that weight, and he's, he's crying out to God in the midst of that brokenness. And so, 
this is not a, instead of repenting, ask God not to be just and not to discipline you. It's when you have repented, cry out to God as you still wrestle with those feelings of shame and brokenness. And the first thing I want us to note here is David shows us that brokenness over sin is experienced primarily as a feeling. And it's a good feeling. I mean, it doesn't feel good, but it's good to have that feeling, that experience. I mean, if you look at what David says here in verse 2, he says, I'm languishing, my bones are troubled. Verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled. Verse 6, I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Verse 7, my eyes are wasting away because of grief. These are, this is emotional language. David is saying, my, his emotions are fully engaged. He's saying, I'm wrestling with my sin. I'm wrestling with the shame that I feel over my sin. So a couple key takeaways for you and me. First, as we consider David, it's good. It is actually good for you and I to be sensitive to our sin and to feel the weight and the brokenness that comes from sin. We're not supposed to stay in that moment. We're not supposed to wallow in that. But it is actually good for us to feel that sensitivity, to feel that emotional weight and I know for myself, uh, I have good friends that are much more sensitive to their sin than I am. I'm much more callous. And it's so spiritually beneficial for them. It's so healthy for them. And it's an area that I need to grow. Like being sensitive to my sin is actually a blessing. And so when you and I feel that sensitivity, when we feel that emotional weight, it's actually, it's a, it's actually a grace to us when we do. And David also shows us here like there's right ways and wrong ways to process this, to feel this. So the right way to feel broken of your sin is to feel deep emotional weight that leads you to a certain action. The wrong way is to fake it or not to feel it at all. We've seen in Scripture, if you study the New Testament and other places, you know that um, there are cultures, including the biblical uh, accounts, that have like professional mourners, professional weepers, people who can summon up an emotional response without having something going in their hearts that going on in their hearts that mirrors the response. God is not asking you and me to be good at emoting. He's asking us to cry out to him from a true feeling. So faking it is not the answer. That's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for fake emotions. But we do here see David not drumming up some kind of form expression, but he's, he's actually feeling the weight of his sin. He's coming to face to face with his sin. He feels the shame of it. He's cried out to God. He's repented. And now we see David saying, hey, I, I drench my couch with tears. With weeping, like my, my bed is, is drenched with weeping. Now, I don't know if he's being literal here, if he's saying last night when I woke up, I realized I had been sobbing into my couch, and so there's a giant wet spot on my couch. Or if he's just saying figuratively, it's as if this has happened. Either way, it doesn't matter if you're a highly emotional person or if you have low emotional uh, intelligence like I do. We have to be a people who, like David, figuratively feel so sensitive and broken over our sin that it's, it's as if we had drenched a couch with tears. Like we feel the weight of it. Now, feeling it is not where we're supposed to stop, but we don't want to jump past the call to feel it. Uh, I was thinking about um, Martin Luther this week and the story that has been told of him when he was a monk. Like He would wear out his superior, his father confessor, because when he was a monk, he would go in for daily confession, and he'd be in there for hours with that man. And the man was worn out. Like he did not want to be Martin Luther's confessor because Martin Luther would go into all the minutia because he felt a weight 
of his sin. He felt it, and he knew he needed to be freed from it. But within that system, he thought the only way to be freed from it was to do the proper work, which would be penance and also confession. So he's trying to do the work of feeling relief when actually there's no relief in that. But we can see Martin Luther was sensitive to his sin. He felt the weight of it. He felt the emotional strain of it. And there's a a continuum, there's a spectrum here. Like for some of y'all, you are on one end of the spectrum and and you feel really sensitive over your sin. And if you feel really sensitive over your sin, there's a temptation over here. And that's to feel so sensitive that you assume that that's because there's no hope for you. You're such a disastrous sinner, there's no hope for you. So high sensitivity to sin actually sets you up to potentially believe a lie about God's grace. But we are called to be sensitive over our sin. But then at the other end of the spectrum... You've got me and some of y'all. We're a little bit more callous. And actually, the lie we're tempted, we, we're tempted to believe is that God's grace is so big, my sin's not that big of a deal. And God's grace does not tell us that sin's not a big deal. God's grace is a big deal because of how big a deal our sin is. And so then we're tempted to believe this lie over here. That, and both of them mean that we don't actually run to the one who can actually heal us of the shame that we feel over our sin. One feels unworthy. One feels that it's unnecessary. And so we need a true uh, sensitivity to our sin that doesn't just make us feel broken, but then the second aspect of crying out to God. You cry out to God because of the feeling of brokenness, but in that crying out, you also turn to him. You don't just sit in that crying. You don't sit in that feeling. You turn to God. And so David shows us the value here of experiencing and engaging that feeling because it drives us to turn to God. Because it's not just a general you know, crying out. We're crying out to one who can do something about it. Look at what David says in verse 2. He says, be gracious to me. Heal me. Verse 4, turn and deliver me. David's words here, they're built on that repentance that he's already expressed, we would understand, we would assume. And so it's not a cry to God of a repentance. It's a cry of a repentant one who now asks God to be at work in him and to lift him out of his brokenness. Lift me out of this experience. Because David knows that God, not only is God the only one who can rescue him from judgment, but God's also the only one who can pull him out of the shame that he feels over his sin. God's the only one who can do that. And so he cries to God in repentance, and he cries to God to lift him out. And I want us to consider what this means. Like David's here crying out to God, and his assumption here, and David is right, is that God doesn't want him to be languishing. God doesn't want him to be troubled or grieving or moaning or crying. And David's right because God doesn't want that for us. Is it good for us to experience the sensitivity? Yes, it is gracious, but God does not intend for us to stay in it. He doesn't intend for his kids to be the kids who are constantly languishing, constantly troubled, constantly grieving, constantly moaning and crying and drenching their couches. That experience is meant to achieve something, not to be the daily experience of being God's kid. So where should we go uh, in our brokenness? Like if we, th- if we think about this, David shows us, hey, you're supposed to run to God. It seems simple, and it is simple. We run to the one who can actually tell us, when I say you're forgiven, you're actually forgiven. When I say that I've taken the shame, you've actually been freed from the shame. We should go to the one who can tell us who we really are because of what he's done. But we're tempted not to, and oftentimes we don't. There's just... There's probably plenty of reasons, but two come to my mind as I was studying and thinking about it this week, and they're both the result of bad theology. Like if we think that God is just, which he is, but we think that his justice is incompatible with his grace and mercy, then we're not going to run to him. 
we're not going to run to him. So a bad theology of who God is and how he is both the true king but also the loving father, if we don't hold both of those dearly, we're not going to run to him. But then we also have this bad practical theology. And what I mean by that is you and I read our own hearts back onto God. And we think to, about ourselves. We're like, if somebody treated me the way that I've treated God, I would burn that bridge. There would, there would be no relationship with that person. Some of us can look and say, I have been treated in those ways, and I have destroyed those relationships. I have severed those relationships. And we read that back on God, and we believe that God doesn't actually want relationship with us, because if we were in his shoes, we wouldn't want relationship with us. And so we take our finite and flawed and broken and self-absorbed hearts, and we read them back onto God. And in so doing, we don't run to him. And so our theology robs us of drawing close to the one who can actually heal us. Because that's what David wants. He says, be gracious to me, heal me, deliver me. David wants God to pull him up out of the experience of the shame, back into the experience of knowing the grace that's there for him, of knowing the love that's there for him. You can see in verses 1 through 7, David has been processing his feelings over this brokenness of sin as we've looked at that. And then in verse 8, we have this shift. I don't know if you noticed it when we first read the psalm, but the voice, David's voice shifts. And who he's speaking to shifts. He's speaking to God all the way through verse 7, but then in verse 8, he transitions and he says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And so he shifts here, and what we see him do is he looks at the people who have been lying to him about God, and he calls them out. He rejects the lies. His foes have been increasing his grief, these workers of evil that have been trying to lead David to believe that that his situation is hopeless, that there is no hope for him, that God would never listen to a man like him, and he calls out their lies. There's, I don't know if you have this book. If you have children, you may have this book. If you don't have children, you might think you don't need this book, but we all need this book. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it's a fantastic uh, devotional tool. And I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about the fall. Uh, She refers to the fall as the terrible lie. And there's this, I'm going to read one um, little excerpt for you from, this is how she summarizes what happens after Adam and Eve reject God's kingship, after they commit treason. She says this, a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. That's the basic lie that that David is pushing back against. It's the basic lie that Adam and Eve believed there in the garden that there is something about me or something about, something about God or something in my life that, that tells me he doesn't love me. And that lie takes root. And it can take a lot of different forms. And David's calling out lies that people are sharing with him, that people are propagating with him, lies that would call into question um, God's heart towards David, the hope that he would have, the hope that we would have. Lies like, hey, you've done, you've done too much to be forgiven. What you've done is too much. God has, he has a lot of mercy and grace, but you've exhausted it all. Or maybe it's a lie that says, hey, yeah, God forgave, forgave you, but you've screwed up too many times now. Like you can only get out of jail so many times free, and then it's over. And you have actually used all of your nine lives. Or maybe you're one of the, you've experienced this where you, you've struggled with the same sinful pattern for a while, and you start wondering this about yourself, or someone may even voice it to you and be like, hey, if you were really repentant, you'd stop falling into this. You'd stop doing this. And the fact that you're not stopping means that you don't have a relationship with God. He's not for you. 
And so that, that one needs a little bit of nuance. Like in one sense, if you and I are struggling with like a sin pattern, a habitual sin pattern, we need to dig into that. But God's character hasn't changed just because I struggle with sin. And just because there is an area of sin that is more tempting for me than others, God hasn't changed. And so we can't let our struggle with sin change the way we understand his grace and the way that he works. Do we need to press into that? Yes, but not because God is somehow against those who have to confess the same sin again and again. Or maybe a lie that says, hey, God is going to forgive you. He has forgiven you. But just to be real, he's not going to want you to feel that way. Because it's actually going to work better if you just feel ashamed because then you'll stop doing those things. God wants you to feel really bad about this forever because if you feel bad about it, then you'll stop. And isn't that what God wants? That's a lie that says God uses shame as a tool to shape behavior. And our God does not use shame as a tool to shape behavior. When I was a youth pastor... We used to play this game with the youth, and there's lots of games like this, you know, like rhythm games where you have to say the right thing at the right time, and if you don't say it at the right time, you get kicked to the back of the line. Well, we did one that was like animal sounds, like you'd make your animal sound, then you make somebody else's animal sound, and they would make their sound and pass it. It sounds bizarre if you're not playing the game, but the point of it being like if you fell out of rhythm, you had to go to the back of the line, and I, as a good gospel-centered youth pastor, referred to the back of the line as the seat of shame. You had to go to the seat of shame. If, you, if you, you messed up in the game. And we had this one kid in our youth group. He loved this game. And he would just yell at the top of his lungs anytime somebody messed up. Sit in the shame. And I think on some level, we're like that kid. We're like, God wants me to sit in the shame. God wants me to know what a screw up I am. God wants me in that shame because that's the place that I'll know how unworthy I am. And that is not how God operates. And David knows that. And so he calls out these lies. He calls out lies that would tell him, hey, there's no hope for you. You sit in the shame, David. He calls out these lies. He rejects them. And so I want you and I to acknowledge the fact that when we believe lies like this, they're paralyzing. If you and I believe that God wants us to sit in the shame, then Satan is winning when it comes to our, our, our utility for God's kingdom. God's still going to advance his kingdom, but if you and I are going to participate in it, we can't assume that our Father wants us to sit in the shame. Because if you and I sit in the shame, then we're not talking about grace, we're not engaging people with grace, we're not actually telling them the good news of what Jesus has done to us because we don't feel it or believe it in that moment. So when we sit in the shame, Satan has sidelined us. Our Father doesn't call us to sit in the shame. When we feel shame, we run to him. Now, the last thing I want to share with you is this preaching the truth that David does here. He preaches the truth to himself with conviction. In verse 8, he says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. In verse 9, he says, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David has had something happen in his own heart here. He's rejected the lies, and he knows that God has heard him. He has been received. He has been accepted. He has been restored. And so it's like it's a, a gospel declaration where David says to himself and to his foes as well, no, my God is gracious. He has heard my plea. He has heard my prayer. He's accepted my prayer. I'm restored. And so I want to leave you this morning with just some 
gospel truths that I want you and I to be ready and willing to preach to ourselves when we feel the brokenness of our sin and we feel the weight of the shame of sin and we're tempted to believe that God would have us sit in it. I want us to remember what it says in 1 John 1, that, that our God is faithful and just, and if we confess our sins, he forgives us of our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You and I are, you and I are free, we're forgiven, and we're cleansed. We're not walking around in shame. Or Hebrews 12, 2, we're told that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and it was a joy that was set before him, and because of that, he endured the cross, despising the shame. You and I are the joy that was set before Jesus, and so he went to the cross, despising its shame, taking the shame that was due for you and me. Our Father doesn't want us to sit in the shame. Romans 8 tells us there's no condemnation for us if we're in Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that it was through Jesus' blood that we've been forgiven. We're fully forgiven. And in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The good news is our father loves us and he does not want us to sit in the shame. And so I want to tell you this morning, if he is your father, if Jesus is your elder brother and your savior, your shame was taken to the cross. And if you feel sensitive and broken over your sin, it's gracious because God wants you to run back to him because he's the one that loves you and he wants you welcomed back into his arms. Father, thanks so much for this time to spend looking at this psalm together. I thank you for the encouragement it is to us. Uh, I thank you for the way that you have penned it along with so many other different beautiful, uh, beautiful pieces of literature that make up your word from beginning to end, an inspired word to help us know your heart for us and the life that you freed us into. We thank you for Psalm 6. I pray that it will be an encouragement to our hearts today and in the weeks to follow so that we will know that even though we are sinners, we are saved by grace and that you have despised the shame and you freed us. We pray that you will give us that sense of love and then give us a courage to live like people who know that we are loved and we are free. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.